I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. His whole house, his study, his scrabble set, his oak desk and double-breasted suits have all gone up in smoke. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for it. <laughs> you don't own me, I'm not your property, so take a shifty little bitty eyes off of me. Let's go. I don't have all day. Welcome to Eyes on Gilead, our weekly podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. There is a lot going on in this show, and we think it helps to talk it out after every episode of The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 premieres on SBS and at SBS On Demand. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS, and I'm joined by my colleagues and fellow resistors, Sana Kadar of ABC Life. Hello. Natalie Handley of SBS Voices. Hi. And Heidi Island of SBS On Demand. Hi. And baby Greta saying a big hello there as well. This week we're talking about episode 10 of The Handmaid's Tale, which is a big one for Fred Waterford. And it's at this point I'm going to tell you that we are going to be featuring an interview with Freaky Fred himself. Joseph Fiennes is going to be on the show talking about Commander Waterford. So do stick around for that. But in the meantime, we have just watched episode 10 and this one is called Bear Witness. We sincerely apologise for... Intruding. Ready to strike back at her oppressors. How long are we going to let Gilead keep him? June starts making arrangements for an ambitious plan. Do you know anyone who could help me move children out? But a devious ploy on the part of Commander Waterford threatens to derail her. There are mechanisms in place to ensure virility. All right. We're back in business. We're back at the Lawrence's now. Let's do the round the room. What stood out for you? Zana, let's start with you. That for the first time we get a definite orientation in time. We see that Nicole was born in 2017. We hear that Hannah was taken away five years ago. And that means basically it makes Hannah four years old when she was taken, which I thought she looked a bit older. And uh, it means we're in 2018 right now Mm. in the show. Mm. Crazy. Yes, I appreciated that timeline. Yeah, it puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? Mm. Natalie, what stood out for you? Um, Actually, a lot of things this week I feel like the show is getting back on form again after last week's dip. So I'm feeling very happy and positive about everything. Um, I really enjoyed seeing the sort of unraveling of Joseph Lawrence this week. We've mm. always wondered about him and wondered what's going on inside that brain of his. And I feel like we got a bit more of an insight, which I enjoyed. Heidi, what's it up for you? Uh, I think my standout was the relationship that's growing between June and Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Um, I've kind of been hoping that something like this would happen all season. And I think f- for a lot of the time I was blindsided like everyone else as to who the allies Jean was going to make would be. And I'm happy that Eleanor is emerging as one of those allies now rather than other characters like, you know, Serena or Lydia. <laughs> so I enjoyed I enjoyed Eleanor and uh, Jean. Yeah. And for me, I guess it's kind of just broadly what happens across this episode, just all the nods to consequences that come across like sort of um everyone's in their own little world but other characters are mentioning to them consequences of the smallest of actions and the biggest of actions 
hypothetically like getting a whole bunch of kids out. But a lot of people mentioned to different people, oh, you, you'd get killed for that or the dog's tear you apart for that or all of the consequences, which brings me to Fred <laughs> because his arc throughout this episode is fantastic and uh, the way he is like a popped balloon by the end of the episode is just, I love it. So let's get into it. I guess the way it opens is great. It's obviously we're just coming back from last week. June is en route back from the hospital, practically skipping back, <laughs> practically sprinting. But the orchestral music. What yes. was that? That actually reminded me of The Good Fight, which is another show on SBS, which I highly recommend. <laughs> but that always starts with sort of orchestral music with everything blowing up. So mm-hmm. that's where my mind immediately went. But, yeah, right. but I love that show so much that it just made me happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at both ends, top and tail of this episode, there's quite orchestral music on this one. And I love that June... You know, she's still hobbling from having to kneel for months, who knows, but she's racing ahead of Aunt Lydia. But Aunt Lydia, bless her, she's still pretending she's in charge and trying to <laughs> motivate June to get home. <laughs> she needs no motivation. I was and actually thinking about you in this. I thought, oh. I thought Aunt Lydia's back on form. Fiona's going to love it. <laughs> and we know we, we know June's motivation is back because the fire theme is back. There was fire all over the place yeah, again. Yeah, there really was. Yeah. yeah. So so her fire is back. Uh-huh. Sure is. And her skin looks great. Like she's, <laughs> yeah. she's luminescent. Yeah. Compared to last week where she was, you know, so ashen-faced. Yes, she's yeah. looking good. She's got a dewy complexion this week. It's... Yeah, <laughs> our girl is back on a lot of ways. And, of course, they get to Lawrence's and the house has had a makeover. Mm-hmm. It's been fredified. And this, this is, is DC standards now taking yeah. over, which is kind of scary. Yes. Because what does that mean about the rings, which we hear about later? All How long that. till we see more of those in, in Boston, wherever we are? Yeah. But that's what I mean about the seeing the... The unravelling of Joseph Lawrence. We were just starting to... All the, all the things that we thought about him in the beginning of the season and we were trying to figure out who he was and how much power he had and we figured he had so much power because his house looked different mm-hmm. for a start and that he was sort of managing to get away with not getting any handmaids pregnant and... and not um, going to meetings. And not going, exactly. to, and not going to meetings. So, um, so, yeah, seeing that the house is different is, the, is that first sign of... Like, oh, okay, so... Gilead's yeah. coming for him. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And he mentions it when, when June goes in, that he makes the point, oh, well, Eleanor's safe here, like in the house. The house is sort of the sanctuary from the rest of Gilead. But when Serena, Fred and What's-His-Face come and knock, and then, yeah, that sanctuary is invaded. I love the intrigue in this episode. I mean, I think we're due for a North Korea-style purging at the top with the commanders. Like, mm. You know, that people are starting to turn on each other and who knows what Fred's going to do with that phone. I'm very interested to see how exactly that plays out and whether he starts dobbing in Gilead to get Nicole. I don't, I don't actually know mm. how they're going to trade for for Nicole. But yeah, the the turning on Lawrence, that was interesting. And, and I'm really, I'm here for more of that. I want to see more people turning on each other and stuff start to disintegrate from yeah. the inside. Yeah, yeah. All of the rats. I love it. Yeah. Like just seeing how, how they are uh, angling and, and all the um, jostling for the top. But Fred, does he turn on Lawrence... Because of June. That's the thing, isn't it? Fred's arc is just so interesting in this episode, like you said, Fiona. And part of that is because I was like, what is he doing? He has spent this season trying to woo his wife back. Mm. And it seems to have worked. Like they had that sort of falling back in love moment. They had that lovely dinner. Then they had the sexy tango dance. (laughs) And and now they're living in an apartment together back in Gilead, so it seems. Really ugly apartment, by the way. No colours whatsoever. It's Uh devoid of colour. Yeah, that's right. Um, I thought 
but it's now worked. But clearly he just is so bolstered by that that now he wants to get the next thing that he wants back, which is June, who he's just obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, but now you're ruining your relationship with your wife again. What are you doing, Fred? They're both obsessed with her. They, the amount of times they asked her how she was feeling or some version of that. I was mm-hmm. like, what the hell do you care? This they is need so- her. Yeah. It's this weird codependent Yeah, that's triangle. exactly. Yeah. And everyone needs her. I mean, the way June directs everyone this episode, she's directing the freaking ceremony, for God's sake. That's she, right, exactly. Yeah, just that in so many ways, this episode reinforces how much everyone relies on June to get shit done. I do love that Alma tells her she's super annoying or <laughs> whatever it is she says. Yeah, she says she's so conspicuous, which yeah. we've said all along. I mean, yeah, running along white walls. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's some truth bombs in this one. It's great. But yeah, on that idea of Fred, that when he does come in and sees June in this inspection that happens that is apparently a thing now Mm. he's so puffed up and like our first shot of him is going up the stairs it's an ascent kind of thing i love june's face when she sees him coming and just sort of looks to the handmaid next to her and is like oh shit-eating grin coming across (laughs) here what's what's his story like she notices the change in him i think he's strutting yeah like a big peacock (laughs) yes peacock (laughs) and i guess it showed um june's power i guess or june's power over him because when he went up those stairs, he kind of went straight to her mm. as well. Yeah, and they're so puffed up, both of them, he and Serena, showing off Winslow because they've been in Washington almost all the time, I, I imagine, since we've, we haven't seen them for a couple of episodes. So they've kind of been in the power circles doing their sexy tango in front of all the elite. So they're feeling very empowered. And, yeah, my joy in this episode was just watching that all unravel for Fred in particular. How did it unravel, though? Can you remind me? Well, like first, June gets the chip in by saying that Lawrence respects her. Right. um, And that they both take that as a bit of a kick in the guards. Serena's face. Well, they both, there's a first sign of deflation. Um, And then the next time we see them is in that conversation with Winslow having having the scotch and Fred turns on Lawrence, goes to dob him in yep. and says they do start speculating about their absence of children and how they had four handmaids and nothing's produced. And then there's a veiled threat. If he's unfit to lead his household, he's unfit to lead Gilead. And Fred physically drops into his chair at that point. <sighs> Praise be. And then he's sitting over the rest of the time we that, see him. Oh like gosh, he's, right. First we see him going upstairs and then all, the last we see him is him sitting. Serena's higher than him in the scene. Like he's just... The physical uh, drop of him in this episode is amazing. I hadn't quite picked up on that. Okay. Like, I, 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 he seemed deflated in that last scene with Serena, obviously. And I suppose June telling him at least it wasn't you. Oh, yeah, that happened too. ceremony, <laughs> you know, was a punch in the guts as well, which <laughs> he really... else too. Yeah, exactly. He quite felt. But I hadn't, I hadn't quite realised that, yeah... He's he's such a deflated character by the end of this episode, but when you when you put that all in the line, it makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused there too. I'm glad you explained that, Fee, because like that last scene with Serena mm. bringing the satellite phone to to Fred and proposing going through other channels to get Nicole back, I was like, I was just like a little bit like, oh, but what's Fred's motivation to do what Serena says at this point? But now now that makes so much more sense. Yeah, but I'm still interested in why would he use back channels to get her back? Like, he, he can still do it via Winslow. What What is he going to give in exchange for Nicole? Like, is it going to be... He could give Winslow. Right, so he will give in, insider information or something about Some, Gilead. Yeah. The whole idea of transactions here, like, you know, June's already said it to Lawrence that they need something. Like, they'll give them a big fish and you'll be okay. But does Fred care that much? Like, I mean, would he turn on Gilead for Nicole? Like, does he care enough about Nicole? I don't think I don't know if he cares about Nicole, but I think we're going to hear that when we have the interview with Joseph Fiennes 
later about the bind that Fred is now in. He has, he's now at a crossroads. So he's now got to choose family or career. And Serena at the very end just puts that choice absolutely to him and he has to make a decision now which one is more important. And he has Mm. spent all season trying to get his family back on track, trying to get like Serena back and trying to get his daughter back. So that's the interesting thing for me is where does Fred go from here? Mm. The annoying thing... Um, which has come up with Joseph Lawrence's character as well, is who actually gets away with stuff in this world. And in Gilead, handmaids, except for June apparently, um, don't, ever get, <laughs> don't ever get away with anything. But even the handmaids in Canada, so like Emily is, is being reminded of killing a man in Gilead. But if Joseph wants to get out, Joseph Lawrence, I mean, wants to get out, and um, if Fred wants to get out, because they're such high level, they'll mm. be able to make a deal despite yeah. all the awful things mm. they have done. They probably can actually get out and go on to live nice lives. That was my thought about Lawrence the whole time when they're like, well, he's a war criminal. He'll get thrown in jail. And I was like, surely he could share very, you know, top level information and get an amnesty deal. He'll be fine. <laughs> Great. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, Let's go to Joseph Fiennes. Um, he, he's going to give some amazing insight into Fred. And a reminder, this was on on the set back in uh, whenever that was now, months ago. So th- there were several other journalists there, so we're all asking questions, but not everyone was on microphone. So I'm going to paraphrase some of the other questions here. Incredible insights. Let's hear from Joseph Fiennes. First up, Joseph, obviously there have been some pretty dark places last season and all of this season so far. Tell us about Fred. How do you get through a season when he's so unrelentingly brutal to everyone around him? From Fred's perspective, I think the two powerful ladies took him to some pretty horrific places. So the blame is fairly on Fred and Serena (laughs) uh, from his perspective, um, you know, and another handmaid of of Joseph causing an international crisis vis-a-vis the baby being taken away. So I think, you know, I'd rather think it's the other way around. Poor Fred, you know. (laughs) Uh, He's left with nothing. Um, And in this season, I don't know if I'm allowed to drop spoilers, but... um, Oh, okay. well... Yeah, I mean, his whole house, his study, his scrabble set, his oak desk and double-breasted suits have all gone up in smoke. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for him. Poor Fred. Yeah, poor Fred. But he, he, yes, and then quite rightly, he's an awful, power-hungry, ambitious, patriarchal rapist. You know, what can I say? I mean, really, we're really going to get down (laughs) to the... Now, tell us, fan interactions must be interesting for you. Do you ever get recognised in the street as Commander Waterford? Um, occasionally you'll get someone going, hey, I know you, and then they glaze over with, oh, dear, I don't really <laughs> want to know you. And they kind, of, they kind of filter through, I know this person, he's really not good. I don't quite, quite I can't place it, you kind of feel. But, but generally, you know, people love the show. No, no one's punched me yet, so fingers crossed. <laughs> Some of my favourite parts about Fred and Serena are when we see you united back in the day when you had this joint plan that has now obviously fallen by the wayside once Fred was able to seize power. Can we talk about that and how much within the household the dynamic between Fred and Serena has changed from those lively scenes we saw when you were such a dynamic couple? Well, I think, in fact, for me, that was one a small but pivotal moment for Fred in the flashback, both because we see them united. You see Fred championing his wife, a woman with a strong voice and a vision, and they're very much joined at the hip. 
and in love, and you see his care and dedication towards her, and then she gets shot, and the devastation that Fred feels um, reveals, if I dare say, his feminine side in, in that he's truly broken, and it's Serena who says, stop sniveling, you know, be a man. And I think for Fred, and for maybe for most blokes, but certainly for Fred to open himself up and then have his wife say, you know, stop crying, be a man. It's a bit of a shock to his psyche. And then we see pretty quickly him being a man, executing the person that tried to assassinate her. So I love just in that small moment, we get a glimpse into the sort of how his psyche is forged and from, it's from a moment of damage and a repair. But I'm not going to point the finger saying Serena created the monster, but certainly it's a very interesting, complex look at how monsters are born. And I'm sure if we look at all the predators and, you know, awful abuses by mostly men in power, what is the root cause? Is it from their childhood? Is it abuse? Is it a lack of love? Is it, you know, what are the causes? So I just love for that moment, of course, this is The Handmaid's Tale. It's not Fred's tale. Um, he's an antagonist and he's there to help the journey of the protagonist and make that journey complex. But I love in that complex narrative that we see that he's, he's sort of fac faceted in that regard, that he's not just the kind of a face of Gilead, that there's something more interesting. And just on Yvonne, in season two, you, you two had such an in intense time together. And I mean, I feel like in season two, she really shone her character. She had a real moment. It was a beautiful journey. And um, also that relationship with June was, was stunning. And Yvonne brings such a, a, a wonderful integrity to the character that's not necessarily there in the book. And so, um, you know, there's a great vulnerability uh, and, and great sadness. And they're both haunted. They're, they're haunted by lack of touch. They're haunted by a lack of child, uh, um, a lack of dynamic in the relationship. There's a sort of barren emptiness. And I think she inhabits that desolate kind of journey beautifully. I look at the power of, of all the actresses and, of course, Lizzie and Yvonne and Anne Dowd. And I, I'm just mesmerised by the skill and brilliance and the work ethic, especially Lizzie, who's in every... I mean, she's also producing, so she's watching, she's giving notes, she's part of a bigger conversation when I'm putting my feet up, you know. She's <laughs> involved as a producer, and so just from that work ethic, I have nothing but absolute respect for, for the cast. In terms of women in this piece, you know, it's a sort of ongoing in, interior dialogue because I have two daughters and... I've said before, the three most important people in my life are my wife and my two daughters. And so, of course, there are conversations which arise out of this that as a, a, a father of two daughters, I, I can't help but keep that dialogue and that thought process going in regards to making sure that when they arrive at a place where they want to engage in the world, it's a world where they have the opportunities to you know, fulfil their dreams and be the gifted people they are in their own ways. So this season, of course, we've seen Fred and Serena go to Washington and that change that that has had in Fred has been fascinating. Can you tell us, in terms of playing him, what going to Washington and mingling with the elite men of Gilead has done to him? Firstly, at Washington, I've got to say, what a well-behaved crowd. I mean, they were so lovely. I was expecting, you know, for rockets and <laughs> abuse, but they, they were lovely. But um, Washington, yes, is the sort of pinnacle of 
of power. It is the sort of the mecca center of Gilead. Um, and what I love, though, is if you peel away the layers, rather like all the sort of ladders of, of power, when you get to the top, you, you see that actually it's just as pathetic there as it is right down the bottom. In that, you know, in, in Fred's district, he's got magazines, he's got art, he's got all the sort of degenerate kind of material that is banned and Serena smokes. And when we get to the higher echelons, you'd imagine it's a different picture. But what I love is we don't. We get a, the same story, just on a bigger basis. So there's a learning curve for Fred. For me, this season is the most interesting for Fred because he's got a true arc. Before, he's been a rather, rather like the book, a kind of the face and the, uh, of the antagonist, but not in much depth. It's quite sketched. And then this, there's a lovely the journey of winning back Serena after the sort of brutality of beating and finger chopping. And there's a really hard task of really winning her back, and which we have tonight. This is a pinnacle of that moment. And also trying to get the baby back, which goes hand in hand with winning Serena. And then again, ambition rears its ugly head. And, and Fred is, I've said this before, is a sort of a study of the corrosive effects of, of power. He's suddenly in the mecca center of Gilead, and he's got more opportunities for power. So he's at a crossroads, whether he wants to pursue that, which might mean that he loses, or it might have an adverse effect on Serena and the child, or whether he puts his ambition aside and, and really goes for the family dynamic. And leopards don't normally change their colors, so <laughs> we'll see. Yes, we will. And one of the strengths of this show is that it feels horrifyingly relevant, week to week even. Has that put added pressure on you and on the team to feel a mission that you're somehow putting a mirror to the face of America? Well, I think um, we have to credit um, Margaret Atwood and her brilliance in the novel and then credit our writers and directors for keeping an authenticity, even though we've departed from the book in many ways, there's still an authenticity, and that authenticity lies in themes of identity and feminine identity. Um, and, you know, we definitely have been, and it's come more in the forefront, which is a wonderful thing, more than ever, female identity in the modern world. And um, so, yes, I think in terms of that respect, I mean, I, as Fred, even... Play, I, I play my part in terms of that conversation, but you can't help but not notice the parallels of, of sort of female autonomy that comes under fire, decisions made by powerful men. I mean, I even think about my wife giving birth and, you know, the position that she's instructed to give birth at is a position that a man invented. <laughs> so it's sort of there from all these kind of crazy... The sort of architecture, the male architecture is there and it's sort of... So I do feel the pressure of, of challenging that and us having a discussion about making that playground level on many ways, whether it's parity of pay or opportunities. And I think, you know, our show has caught the sort of political zeitgeist in that regard. And, and I think we all, and certainly I would, would love to honour that conversation because it's a conversation that, that shouldn't go away. And a question on power. Is it the power itself that's corrupting everyone? Or what do you think? Is it a particularly masculine power that's corrupting Fred and has made Gilead such a brutal regime? Or might we see a similar thing happen if women were in charge? Well, let's give them a, at least a try. <laughs> you know, that's my first sense. Yeah. You know, even if women are equally as corrupt with power, at least let them have half the enjoyment that the men have had for centuries. 
and, and then debate it. But, yeah. um, but I imagine, you know, that masculine feminine psyche is so, so wildly different in many regards. Um, but as you're talking, I look behind and there's Elizabeth II. And I think yeah. about Elizabeth I. Yeah. I did this film with Kate Blanchett and powerful women. Yeah. But they seem extraordinary. Um, in their sort of matriarchal rule. And I don't know if they've been corrupted, but they've navigated the, the sort of the corrosive male arena brilliantly. But off the top of my head, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know quite how to answer that, but I, I think, you know, I think power does corrupt, but mm -hmm. I think it's structured by men. Maybe the sort of the architecture of power has been invented by men mm -hmm. and not women. If they in, had invented it, women more, and been more a part of the table and part of the conversation. The power Maybe it looked different. On the masculinity, I want to talk how you play Fred physically as well, because um, one thing that stood out to me last season was when the faux birth episode happened and all the women were upstairs doing the birthing ritual and the men were down having cigars and you inhabited the space very physically. When, when they were there and all the big guys were in the room, you sort of puffed out your chest and sat back. Can we talk about how you physically play Fred? Um, well, Atwood in the book has one or two clues and one of them lies in a lovely quote which I won't do justice, which is something like describing Fred as this pathetic limb that lives inside a militaristic boot. And so if we look at the desk and the double-breasted and I wear military boots even when I'm wearing a suit, so there's always that sense of being protected. Um, so I guess that gives him, that armour gives him a false sense of his demeanour and position. So I guess that's kind of where the idea from Atwood stems from. And then it just sort of comes naturally with the environment and with... I mean, he's so pathetic. It's how, how do you hide his, his kind of fallible patheticness? And that's, that's what that's doing, really. <laughs> How do you approach the worst elements of Fred? And I'm, I'm curious about specifically the rape scene, that especially violent one in the second season. How do you prepare for that? Sort of you, Elizabeth and Yvonne. Is there preparation and do you talk a lot before having to do it? Um, I remember in the first season we spoke a lot with Reed Morano and I thought she navigated that very first moment wonderfully well, as did Lizzie and Yvonne. And I sort of followed suit and... I think once we discovered the dynamics and the architecture of it, then we felt like we knew what sort of zone we had to be in that everyone was comfortable with, um, that we could then execute it. But there's less, if not any, this season. There might be one, but we don't really see it. And it doesn't really take place, hard to say. But I'm very thankful there's, there's less, <laughs> just personally speaking. So we have to ask you about Commander Winslow. Hi, Commander Winslow. What do you make of how Fred is reacting to this new character as played by Christopher Maloney? Well, Joe's re reacting to Chris in a great way. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> He's good fun, yeah. Um, and, and in many ways, Fred is too. But there's a lovely kind of... There's a danger with, with the character that Chris plays um, Winslow and Fred's trying to work him out. So there's, there's a, a strange perturbing dynamic but at the same time Winslow is affording Fred and and championing Fred's ideas in a way that is really bringing him to the forefront of uh, Washington power and and Gilead power so I think it's a it's a, a nice kind of brotherly 
relationship that's that's found itself. But under the surface, there's something murky and sinister. <laughs> and I don't know how that's going to reveal itself. And just to get back to what you were saying before about being relieved that there were less ceremonies this season, we know you're actors and this is a story, but this is particularly bleak and very dark in places. Are there times at all when you struggle to leave that all behind at the end of the day? Um, I don't struggle to leave it behind. I'm sort of elated when I leave it behind. But, um, but what I love about the show is that, yes, it's tough and it doesn't let you off the hook easy. And it's tough in relation to what we were saying about how it reflects to the, mm. the world around us. But it's not gratuitous. And there's so much crappy gratuitousness out there. And I think it is tough, but if you really look at some of the images, they are tough, but it's tough because we've aligned ourselves with a protagonist, with a heroine for our time and age, and we want to see her champion her cause. That's what's tough. But she nonetheless, in Gilead, as a handmaid, living and breathing is an inspiration. And, and she's got a fight and resistance because of the knockbacks. So she is becoming, I think, even greater um, kind of inspiration than, than previous episodes in, in, in this series and previous um, years. But, but I, I, I have to say, it is, it's, a, it's a world I don't relish jumping into when I'm not working on it, and it's a world I can't wait to escape from. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is kind of relentless, but there's quite no... But Fred, at least in this season, he's on a high a bit. You know, he's a little bit... We've had the Serena, the heavy, the weight and all of that. And now, actually, he's got a skip in his step. He feels like it's all going to work. Of course we know. Yeah, exactly. Of course we know. I know, what, I know at the end it's all going to... I don't know in what way. I mean, I may not come back next season. It might be that bad. But, um, but for now, I'm enjoying at least... He's got a bit of sort of humour and swag. Yeah. Things are going swell. Yeah. So far. And dynamics. Fred and Nick... Can we talk about those two? Because uh, that is an interesting dynamic. Is there going to be more between those two this year? Um, there, there, there is, and it kicked off on the first... I love the first episode of this season where Serena, for the first time, it really hits Fred truthfully about Serena, all of the household, really, but firstly his wife, and I'll come to Nick, about how she because she served in getting the baby out, the levels that she would go to to protect something she loved, I think really is a wake-up call for him and to save a young child, a girl, a daughter from beatings and finger chopping and all that, 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 that a woman in Gilead would be up against. I think his recognition of that is massive and it lands on him in a big way. And there's a moment where he's up in the attic and Nick comes and he prevents him going out while the escape's taking place. And there's a lovely moment where he recognises, I feel, that Nick also, rather than be angry and vicious towards him, I think he's completely perplexed and, and hangs on this huge revelation that here's a man who is the father of the child. He's aware of that, he's cognizant of that. And to see what a father would do to protect both June and his baby. I think it's, again, a massive wake-up call to know what, a, what the true virtue of love and protection is, that it's not through scripture, it's not through beatings, it's not through kind of patriarchal tough rule, that it's something else. And Fred hasn't got that. And he's seeing other, witnessing other people who have and will go to lengths 
to deliver that. And that, that's with Nick, which I really love. So, and then he keeps, he's interesting, he keeps his supposed enemies very close to him, which is obviously, as the saying goes, wiser to do than drive them away. But he does end up, I think, um, it's insinuated that he ends up, he, he promotes him to become a commander. And then out of that, this young commander can lead the front lines in a very terrible war. So I think he's sort of positioning himself, there you go, and you can go to the front line. <laughs> so I think there's, there's both kind of helping him and keeping him close, but quietly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved that epic fight you had with Serena in the household last season. It was incredible. You got a lot of things off your chest. We're allowed to let rip because so much of it is repressed. You know? Yeah, I mean, that must have been fun to shoot, right? Can you tell us about filming that and doing it outside of the Waterford household? That was Dana Reed, who we're working with in the next block. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, it was it's interesting because it's such a contained episode. It's mostly um, in a house with June giving birth and that moment where the Waterfords come in. But within that contained structure, you've got them letting rip, which I love. So you've got these sort of opposite dynamics and, um, and just spitting venom at each other, all their true feelings coming out. Um, it was cathartic to play because it's, you know, everything is so hidden and suggested and it's everything in, it, I guess in many ways, it's rather like film. It's everything said in what's not said. But here it's said in what's said. And that was really, really lovely to, to get into that dialogue. So when you were offered the part of Fred Waterford all those years ago, how much did you know about The Handmaid's Tale at the time? And, you know, when it came to the time of contract sitting in front of you, did you hesitate at all? You're saying, did I read the small print? <laughs> and I don't think I did when it came to some of the scenes, and I wish I had. Um, I, I, hadn't, I, didn't, I hadn't read the book. I knew my mum was a, a writer, and she had spoken of Atwood, and I was a sort of like, you know, moody teenager, didn't want to know, um, and regret that. But it's funny how things come round again. And so there I was, before I said yes, I said, let me read the book. Because episode one and two, which I was only given to read before saying yes, was, was very thinly drawn, Fred, as he is a little bit in the book, because it's all from the first person. But I knew that Atwood, for me, was dealing with the horrors of fundamentalism and was still dealing with it. But when I read it, fundamentalism was right here. And in this sense, fundamentalist through a sort of patriarchal theocracy, you know, a world run by men. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I knew that Lizzie and Reed Morano and Bruce were involved. I thought the calibre was, was pretty high. Um, so I was, uh, you know, everything's a, a risk and you jump in, but I felt this is really intelligent, Margaret. Obviously, super intelligent. Lizzie's amazing. This could be rather extraordinary. I had no idea that it would coincide, with, especially in America, with the sort of the politics and in terms of protest, the iconic image of the handmaid, I had no idea. So it was, it was really powerful to, to be a tiny piece in that extraordinary puzzle that means so much, quite rightly, to a lot of people. So no regrets, yeah. But I should read the small print. <laughs> and I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much. Thank Great. you. Great. Thanks so much. Yes. All right. Well, that was Joseph Fiennes. It was so much good stuff in there. I'm so glad yeah. that we heard from him and this was the perfect time yeah, wasn't it? to do it. Yeah, I've been waiting for a Big Fred episode. I thought, oh, okay, well, this is the one, obviously, as far as we know. <laughs> <laughs>
So we talked about like the making of Fred, um, which I thought was interesting that he kind of blamed Serena a bit for Fred going a bit off the rails. But what I really liked, um, which talks back to the crossroads that we were just mentioning before Sana, is that like what I really liked about this was how he hasn't known how to love and he hasn't known how to be a husband and a father, but he has been intently watching it. And so he watched Serena, who who Joseph thinks took Fred down that dark path when she told him to man up last season. Mm. He watched the lengths that she will go to to protect her baby as in her role as a mother. And he watched Nick, who he knows is the father of Nicole, and he watched what Nick, who he thinks is a Gilead man, and, and watched what he did in order to protect his daughter. And so he's been watching these other characters and go, oh, this is what love looks like. And I think that's what this season has been leading up to for him. So now he really has a choice to make. Is he actually a Gilead man or is there still a bit of humanity left in mm-hmm. him? And this is this is kind of the choice he has to make. Holy crap, could this be the revelation of the season that Fred turns on Gilead <laughs> via that phone? Oh, that would be so unexpected, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Welcome to episode 10. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I guess like the theme that I'm trying to, I've been trying to think about, what, it, what are we seeing this season? Because there have been some good parts and some great parts and some not so great parts. And I'm like, what is this all adding up to? Especially because I've been sort of defending June this whole time and I actually found it kind of annoying this episode. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what is this about? I guess what I really like is how they're really making it clear that Monsters are just not monsters and good people aren't just good people mm-hmm. and that everyone is shades of grey all in between. Um, and influenced by their environment. You know? yeah, yeah, We are so. who we are depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah. That's Except true. for Janine. She's just good. <laughs> oh, man, Janine. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, with her, her son as well. Actually, that was yeah. awful. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking we never see June just do a straight-up kindness. It always has something else behind it. And is that true? That's how, Maybe that's recently. How, so even when she was trying to, in the beginning, when she was like saying Gilead is not good for Mrs. Lawrence and she really needs to get out. And I thought, she, I thought that is actually true and she does need that level of help. But I thought, but that's not why June's saying it because she, hmm. she, because she never just does a, a straight up kindness. June's power is that she's always working on her plan in the background. Whereas I thought with Janine, that was just a nice thing yeah. to do. Mm. I think with The Handmaids it is when it surfaces. Yeah. yeah like with someone in Gilead, one of the... One of the powerful in Gilead. Yeah, that's always transactional for sure. Yeah, no, with Janine, oh, my God, that little revelation. They just they just keep putting that knife in further and twisting it around. Poor Janine. Yeah. <laughs> I hope something good happens to her this season to and balance I, out all the bad things. It was compassionate to do that, though. I mean, you couldn't really tell her that. I mean, she'd, she'd lose it if you told her, she wouldn't she? She's mm. been through a lot, you know. Well, <laughs> only an alter- alteration, as Aunt Lydia said, oh. not a maiming. Did you catch that? Yes. When she was speaking to Winslow, she described Janine's eye and the patch she's wearing over it as, you know, an alteration that happened out of a criminal act. And I was like, that is the most downplaying you could ever do for what you've done to her. But mm-hmm. go for it, Lydia. Did you hear the conversation that was happening in the background in that scene while June yeah. was talking to Serena? I mm-hmm. thought that was some really interesting world building. So while Serena is asking June how she's feeling, in the background the others are discussing how the DC standards are being rolled out in the district and Winslow is asking about the veil and the ring and why he's not seeing enough of them around. And you hear um, Fred reply that they're rolling it out slowly and Lydia kind of come in and say, well, you know, the vow is voluntary, of course, and you hear these sort of little pieces of resistance 
to the DC standards from Lydia, but um, just this idea that this pressure is kind of building um, for handmaids to become more controlled. Yeah, and yet Winslow asks June a question. (laughs) You know, she needs to speak. (laughs) So, yeah. What is it? <laughs> what is it you want? Yeah. I mean, I guess he doesn't like the answer, of course, because she, she's a woman who actually values respect. And that was respect. so great. I was like, yeah, was what good. What could you answer that to that? And she chose the best thing she could possibly say because that is such a, like, veiled, <laughs> veiled huh? um, stab at him, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To be treated with respect. That's the last thing he wants to see for handmaids. Yeah. I mean, he gets her back, though, as does Fred. Yeah, they have their little way to... It's all about consequences. Yeah. So thanks, pal. I mean, they end up coming to the door at the Lawrences, but uh, just before they get there, Mrs. Lawrence this time, she's a curious character, this one, in, you know, she's looking for a book. She comes into the office looking for a book, a, a Tashin book, mostly photographs, fair enough, but, you know, June thinks she's going to get sprung and, I mean, she is sprung, but in a hap- happy way, Mrs. Lawrence snaps into action. She's, <laughs> her affliction, whatever it may be, whenever she feels like there's something to be done, like when she's very directed she comes to life, doesn't she? Sort of like when there's mm. a Martha who's been shot in the basement and the guardians are at the door, she snaps into action. When June wants a dossier on the handmaids and she knows where it is, she snaps into action. She's, yeah, can't get a read on her. And snaps yeah. out of it really quick. Well, when she yeah. sees something shiny she's been looking for. <laughs> yes. Well, when she's dealing with ideas of her husband being a war criminal. And yeah. Being, yeah. The, the consequences. Um, That's yeah, right. She's distracted. Yeah, I did love her moments of lucidity and I loved that line she threw in about uh, when June suggests that she could get her out so she can get, you know, the help she needs. You mean go somewhere where I can get mood stabilizers instead of herbal, herbal tea? Because yes. that's all that I can get here. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been wondering about the symbolism of her character because it's had lots of shades of Jane Eyre with like her being the mad woman locked upstairs. And there's even reference in this episode to her, you can't keep her locked in her room. And, look, I need I need some sort of expert in 19th century literature to tell me what this really means because my kind of limited understanding is that when you see that female character who is sort of mad and is locked up in a, a room, it sort of is a double of the main protagonist and it's kind of all of her desires wow. which just don't fit in that world mm. and it's all bundled up in that character and that's why it's locked away. Mm. But what was interesting is that she wasn't locked away in this episode. She actually came out and she came out for that ceremony scene as well and I'm like, it's almost like to me again it was part of the unravelling of Joseph Lawrence when just mm. everything is now mm. out in the open yeah. and, that, and like all the walls have come down and everything's blurring together. And he's gone. He has to go away to attend meetings now. Yes. Which leaves all the women in the house free to roam around and do as they want. Mm-hmm. That really speaks to the passage of time, doesn't it? Sort of that month June's been away. Things are changing in Gilead. One of the things that I heard recently um, about the character of Joseph Lawrence and the actor who plays him, Bradley Whitford, who we heard from earlier um, this season. Friend of the show. <laughs> um, is that apparently the scarf that he's wearing apparently he decided that the character should wear a scarf at all times because it showed how much he was hidden um, and how much he was hiding mm. and I noticed that in this episode once we get to that ceremony scene and certainly afterwards that scarf is gone and his shirt is open at the neck and it feels like he is really exposed and he has he has nothing else to hide anymore. Yeah. And that ceremony scene really did you really did learn a lot about his personality. You didn't did, you? didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was really insightful about 
them as a couple um, and the way they deal with the world they've built and, like, June reminding him, like, what did you... Yeah. Didn't you think they were mm. going to come for you? I'm so glad we didn't have to watch that. Very much so. Actual rape scene. Or, well, two-way rape, really. Oh, God, it's so awful. I'm so glad they didn't show it. I'm so glad you said that because, like, oh, man, this show is this gets you one way or the other. And I thought, are we, are we really blurring the boundaries of what rape is? And I don't want to go into that definition. But I thought, who, who are we really blaming for this? And I'm just looking at Fred and that weird expression he has had on his face in this episode, which looks a little bit blissed out in a bit of a disturbing <laughs> way. And, and I thought... He couldn't rape June himself, so he pretty much orchestrated it so she got raped anyway and he got to be in the house while it happened. And yeah. I was like, oh, you are such an evil character. And the commander who now treats her with quote-unquote respect, I can make him rape her. Like Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he can take that respect away. Yeah. Mm. And the way they come into the house um, and just the dread that, uh, you know, falls over all its occupants who have no familiarity with what the hell to do during a ceremony. <laughs> By the way, you know, we know the rituals of what it meant to happen in that and the wife holding the handmaid down. Serena does that to Eleanor. Like it happens before and like that very prominent hand she places on Eleanor to hold her down just before they actually get to the business of the horrendous rape. But when we're in the room and Eleanor is screaming and shouting and everyone is just trying to shush her very immediately, did we feel sorry for the Lawrences? I did. Did you? I really did. Yeah. And I, I struggled with that because I was like, you made this world. Mm. Well, you know, exactly what June said. You did this. You, this is the hell of your own making. Yeah. But I really, I felt more sorry for her, obviously, the, um, Mrs. Lawrence, because mm. she's, you know, clearly not been happy with much of this for a long time. But I felt sorry for him. And I, then I felt well, yeah. weird about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, it, it does build it there. It is all these shades of grey, as you're saying that. Like, it's, yeah, it's not cut and dry because they're not moustache twirling villains in this. Yeah. They <laughs> have protected the occupants of the house from having to do this. Mm. And she's screaming, you, you said we would never have to do this. But yeah, once the wolves come to the door, you have to, yeah, the world's coming inside your house. And I thought I Serena was interesting as well because I was reminded, I think it was back to season one, about why this ceremony exists in the first place. And there was a scene with Fred with another commander in the back of a car and this is when they first flagged the idea of having the ceremony and they said the wives are never going to go for this and it was kind of tough luck because clearly the ceremony only exists because that's what the guys want to do. They have the technology to do like IVF if they want to, you know, but that's Mm -hmm. not what they want to do. Yeah. They have state-of-the-art hospitals. We saw that last week. We've seen it throughout. And so here's Serena. She, she She knows how it feels to be a wife in this scenario as well and she's just been watching her husband chase after the handmaid that he's still obsessed with. Mm. So, yeah, I just, yeah, there were shades of feeling sorry for so many people, which just makes you feel uncomfortable because they're all such horrible people. Yeah, mm. which is what the show does so well, make you feel sorry for people you shouldn't feel sorry for. I think I also felt sorry for Joseph this episode because it's the first time I've seen him show regret for what he's done. I think he's held, <laughs> held quite strong in previous episodes with not admitting that he regrets the world he's created but we really saw it in this episode in yeah. his expressions and the way he treated his wife and yeah yeah mm. that's what made me feel sorry for him um and again this is another dana reed episode and she directed the last ceremony last year and this time a sort of ceremony is back and also in the episode people are talking about before like before gilead you know five plus years ago but before within gilead um june's making the point 
this used to be common, like the whole quote unquote bearing witness thing. They'd come and knock in to make sure that um, the households were, were doing their part. And you can see why, because which is a sign of how disturbing it is. And of course, not everyone is actually, not everyone would agree with that and not mm. everyone would want to do it. And how uncomfortable it is. Not Not everybody is as... I don't know, malevolent or um, has a sort of personality, that sort of power trip that Fred has and Commander Winslow has. Yeah. I mean, I want to say it's only been five years, but it's been five years. So it's sort of, you know, these people, it shows they had lives beforehand. You know, Winslow used to go golfing with Joseph Lawrence after church on a Sunday. But it shows the passage of some of them have really taken to this new world and are loving it. Others, yeah, need some coaxing and need a bit of Aunt Lydia at the door with the commanders. Yeah, to... Uh, cattle to prod. Make, cattle prod, doctor to check. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's that was rather unpleasant. And he was kind of smarmy then too. I, You know, Lydia yeah. shot him a glance and he looked a bit pleased with the situation. I don't know. It was yeah. a weird look. I think he enjoyed his gross. work too much. Yeah. 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 It's gross. But that, of course, leads to the next conversation. Um, Joseph produces contraception. Bless him for June. Um <laughs> Five years old, maybe? Not sure. <laughs> yeah, is it still working? Yeah, don't know. I want to check on that, but um, still worth a shot. Take it nonetheless. And uh, yeah, here's this idea of, okay, let's make this happen. You can actually get out now, now that they have infiltrated your, your the sanctity of your home. Maybe it's time to get the hell out of Dodge. I'm still confused as to how this plan yeah. is well, going to work. We've still got three episodes. <laughs> this is true, I know. But it's just, it's very audacious and it's stressing me out because nothing has worked. <laughs> and it's already blowing out. Like I think when June's in Loaves and Fishes at the end, she mentions to Alma and Janine that the truck can carry like 10 kids. Mm. And then like they both go off to like find all the handmaids who yeah. want their kids out. And then she makes the the amazing quote from the Jaws, Jaws movie. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger boat. Mm. How many children are they thinking of getting out? Like how is this even going to be possible? Yeah. And on the Jaws joke, were there little sharks in the tank that when she was talking to oh Janine? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that was a nice little foreshadowing of that gag. Yeah. I mean, 10 kids. Sure. Yes, that's amazing. 10 kids, but come on. Yeah, <laughs> you, can do, you can do better, Jean. Yeah, come on. Let's get some road trains. <laughs> Mad Max style. <laughs> Fury Road. <laughs> All right. Episode 11 now we're up to. What do we think? Sana, let's start with you. Oh, What's gonna happen? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> more problems with this plan because surely it can't be just you know easy yeah. from here on out. I, I know we can't just have it all work out in neatly 10. and pat you know at the end when yeah. everything has gone wrong so far. So I don't know. I got nothing. Okay, Natalie, what do you think? I'm gonna. I don't know what is gonna happen, or I'm just gonna say what I really want to happen. I am really missing Nick, and I'm looking yes. at you, Fiona, because you always look at me whenever I mention Nick's name. You always have this sort of like disapproving look and, <laughs> but I am really missing him and I think part of the reason why June went off the rails this season is because he hasn't been around she hasn't had that emotional support and you know and then I think I haven't had it either I just I just need him to come back and look good in a coat please <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one yeah I agree yeah, oh, how surprising. <laughs> Heidi, what do you think? My prediction was actually going to be that we're not going to see Nick again. Like, I don't oh, no. I thought, what have you done, I thought we were going to go to Chicago. I thought we were going to see the battlefront. And I don't think any of that's going to happen. I think I think we're going to be following, um, we're going to be back to Fred and Serena and, and June in the next couple of episodes. I just, I don't know where he's going to come back in. And you were right last week, because you said last week when you broke my heart and said that I don't think we're going to see Hannah again. And then... June pretty much confirmed that to Mrs. Lawrence this episode where she said Hannah's gone. 
basically. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, Haiti was right. <laughs> so you're probably going to be right about this too. <laughs> oh, so depressing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I am intrigued by the phone on the uh, on the table here, I think. Maybe we're bound for Canada again or maybe they we're going to suss that out. At least, oh, Tirillo is going to offer some more trees and more coconuts and maybe we'll see or kill that completely for um, for Fred. Not sure. Who knows? Only one way to find out. Thank you for listening. And I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Sana Kadar, Natalie Hambly, Haiti Island and Baby Greta. Sana, we're going to skip you for an episode, I think. Two episodes. You're off to Canada with Fred and Serena, potentially. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, now I'm going back to Toronto for my grandmother's 80th Aww. for a couple of weeks and then I'll be back for the finale. But I'll miss you guys. We'll miss you too. We need your insights. I'll be on Twitter. I'll be chatting on Twitter. <laughs> See you there. Speaking of which, uh, what have we seen on, on the tweets lately? A fan of the show called Betty reached out on Eyes on Gilead and said that she would love a backstory from Janine and Rita. And I would actually just like to back that myself and go, if anything we haven't seen this season, it is enough of Rita. Mm. So I really hope she comes back in the next few episodes. Yeah. And I'd love a backstory from her. Maybe that can be season four. <laughs> Someone pointed out that Loaves and Fishes has changed dramatically over the last three seasons, which I hadn't actually clocked before, but since it's been pointed out, it's it's such a good point because a few seasons ago there was lots of organic fruit and vegetables and the shelves were much fuller. And as we've gone through the season... Every time we get back there, the shelves are sparser and it kind of looks a little bit like Soviet Russia where there's low supplies of everything. And so I thought that was a really great point. Someone asked us a question, and I know that you responded on Twitter, Fiona, but she asked, what do we think happens to handmaids who have borne children for Gilead but have reached the age that they are no longer fertile? And my response is, nothing good. Sorry, sorry, Ali Watson, I have no good news for you. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Twitter, reach out to us and tell us what you're thinking about where this show is going. You can find me on Twitter at anything but Fifi. Sana, where can we find you? At Sana underscore Kadar. Nat, where can we find you? At Natalie Hambly. And Heidi? At Haiti Island. And as I say, use the hashtag Eyes on Gilead. And feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps other people to find the show. For more Handmaid's coverage, uh, you can head to SBS Guide, where we have recommendations for other things you can watch as you await the next episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Speaking of which, new episodes of Handmaid's Tale Season 3 premiere every Thursday on SBS and at SBS On Demand. Eyes on Gilead is produced by me, Fiona Williams, and edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. You don't own me, I not your property, so take your dirty buildings, thinking eyes off me. You need to get rest today. You can go straight upstairs to your room and take a snooze. Until next time, don't let the bastards grind you down.